Well, welcome, welcome back to uh, number four in uh, 60 or so of these uh, studies uh, that will add a couple of years onto our lives. Uh, we, we come tonight to a, a topic that's a little bit more um, exciting. Uh, we, we have to do, just as you're building a house, you have to... You have to do foundation work, and it's all very necessary if the house is going to survive, and that's basically what we've been doing the last uh, three weeks, uh, dealing in particular with uh, modern uh, philosophical views and postmodern views as to the nature of language and the nature of revelation, uh, and particularly with the enlightenment uh, of uh, Immanuel Kant and others. But tonight we come to deal with the topic of Scripture, and the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture, and this will lead us uh, next week to talk about the infallibility of Scripture and the inerrancy uh, of Scripture and uh, some of the debates that surround that particular topic. So if you've got your notes uh, with you, uh, let me remind you of, the, of a website in addition to the church website. Uh, I've set up another little website uh, which is uh, printed there on the first page uh, of your notes. And if you want to ask any uh, questions, uh, you may do so uh, there. There's a, there's a place where you can ask uh, questions. Uh, in particular, I've uh, posted a video, a uh, YouTube a video of a friend and colleague of mine, uh, Mike Kruger, uh, who's a New Testament scholar and uh, has done a great deal of work uh, dealing with a particular issue um, some of you will know the name of Bart uh, Ehrman, uh, who's published about 20 books, uh, mainly dealing with uh, gospels and letters that never made it into the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the uh, Gospel of Judas, uh, and uh, the provenance of these uh, letters and so on. And uh, Bart Ehrman is a critic uh, of uh, the scriptures and uh, Mike Kruger has a short little video, about 15 minutes. If you've got college students in particular, I would recommend that you listen to it first and then you send a link to your college students because they are going to be faced uh, with the skepticism uh, that folk like Bart Ehrman are throwing at the scriptures. Now, there are two texts here on page one that uh, we're going to refer to and you may want to flip back and forth. Uh, to these texts as we allude to them later in this lecture. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 19 uh, through 21, and especially the final uh, clause Uh, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going to look at, uh, first of all, uh, something that we call inscripturation. Uh, This is is the the doctrine, the view point of how uh, the self-disclosure of God, God's special uh, revelation... Uh, that we were looking at last week in various forms, uh, in various uh, periods of history, how that eventually gets written down uh, and gets written down in the form of 66 books which comprise uh, the canon of uh, Scripture. Uh, 
Now, the Westminster Confession in the first uh, chapter speaks uh, in this way, that it pleased the Lord to reveal himself and afterwards to commit the same wholly unto writing. And that's inscripturation. God revealed himself uh, to the, to the um, patriarchs uh, and to the prophets and to the apostles. And he did so in the, form of, uh, in the form of dreams and revelations and visions and appearances. And we were looking at those last week. Uh, and then he commits that to writing. So there's a distinction then between uh, revelation, God revealing himself, and then there's something more that God does in addition to revealing himself, disclosing himself, perforating into space uh, and time. He commits that to writing. Uh, He uses uh, particular individuals to do that. Now, uh, we talk about the necessity, uh, why uh, is is inscripturation absolutely necessary? And uh, the Westminster Divines answer that by saying, no, it's not absolutely necessary, but it's for the better preserving and propagating of the truth. Uh, God preserved his truth before there was a New Testament canon, before there were gospels and before there were letters. Uh, The words of Jesus were preserved in the early church. There was a tradition, there was a body of truth that was handed on from from one person to another, from one community to another. Uh, But for the better preserving and Uh, preservation uh, and propagating of the truth, God commits it to writing uh, for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church. And then as we were looking uh, just at the close of last week's lecture, uh, because the former ways of God's revealing his will to his people have now ceased, uh, th- that's the view of the Westminster Divines, that those, uh, those early uh, uh, temporary means by which God reveals himself, those means have now ceased and God reveals himself uh, in the scriptures, in the word of God. Now, uh, we do need to do some, some ground clearing uh, before we can uh, address the issue of the inspiration of Scripture because uh, critics abound and we have those who have questioned uh, whether words, nouns and verbs and sentences and clauses and subordinate clauses are adequate enough to contain uh, God language. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, liberal and, uh, and radical thinkers uh, from the past 100 years, coming from various traditions, and I've mentioned some of them here, Schleimacher from the 19th century, uh, and in our own time, um, Boltmann and Tillich, uh, uh, Paul Tillich, actually just after I was converted, uh, within, uh, within two weeks, actually within a week of being converted, uh, a minister uh, put into my hands a book by Paul Tillich, Um, It was, as I look back on it, it was in fact an act of Satan uh, trying to rob, trying to take away the seed that had been sown. I I read it, I actually didn't understand a word of what Paul Delick was saying. Um, Mercifully, it was as though God put a a veil across my my mind. Um, But... uh, 
liberals of various stripes and various traditions have said things like the, the Bible is just a collection of uh, uh, culturally conditioned um, m- myths, um, symbols of non-verbal uh, pressure. God, God uses them. He, 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 he evokes in the human uh, spirit some kind of uh, mystical emotional response and so on. Um, and uh, uh, there have been uh, philosophers uh, who have uh, uh, insisted that language is inadequate uh, and uh, uh, that, that language is just um, uh, uh, an evolutionary uh, development of grunts and groans. The sociologists have studied language and the way language develops and uh, that language isn't a precise tool, uh, that it means different things to different people. And uh, in our own time, uh, playwrights like Beckett, uh, some of you might have seen uh, Waiting for Godot, for example. Some of you might have uh, been... Um, uh, immersed in Ludwig Wittgenstein's uh, philosophy while you were at uh, university. If you weren't, then uh, get, get on your knees and thank, uh, thank the Lord uh, for that. Uh, but certainly some of your uh, children or grandchildren uh, at university are going to be taught by uh, university professors uh, who have imbibed that uh, view, that philosophy, that language is, um, is a is a, 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 an uncertain tool. Uh, it's an imprecise tool. Uh, it, it morphs and changes and is inadequate to contain true truth. And so a doubt uh, has been sown as to the ability of language, whether it's Greek language or Hebrew language or Americanese in particular, uh, or, or the English language or Latin, whether these languages are adequate to contain Um, true truth revealed by God. Now, the answer to all of that is Jesus. And I I don't mean to be simplistic about it, but the answer to it is Jesus. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Now, of course, these liberals don't believe that Jesus is God, so, so it doesn't answer it to them. But to us, it answers this question. Can God speak using human language and actually convey true truth? Well, he did so in Jesus. Jesus is God, and he spoke, presumably Aramaic, he spoke a human language, and conveyed true truth by speaking. Now, some of you may want to follow that a little further, but I'm I'm going to pass over that, but you need to be aware uh, that there's a huge skepticism in the world today about uh, about the sociology of language, and whether whether the Bible as the inerrant word of God is, is even possible. Uh, and my answer to it is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is God incarnate, and, and when he spoke, God spoke. Uh, when, when he uttered words, it was God uttering words, intelligible words. Now, to be sure, uh, the next uh, subheading here is accommodation. When God reveals himself using language, he accommodates himself. And I've got... Uh, I've got some uh, quotations here, one from uh, C.S. Lewis and, and uh, one from Calvin. Uh, look, at, uh, look at Calvin's uh, sentence, short sentence, uh, that, uh, that God condescends to talk to us in homespun language, and this is Calvin's, uh, these are Calvin's words, with a contemptible meanness of words. Um, he, he uses ordinary words, he uses ordinary thought uh, forms. He, he condescends to our ignorance 
Uh, When God prattles to us in Scripture in a rough and popular style, let us know that this is done on account of the love which he bears to us. It's like um, this afternoon I was... uh, I was in my office, and uh, it's just across from Dr. Ferguson's office, and uh, he, had, uh, he had some families visiting today with uh, children uh, who are going to be baptized this coming uh, Lord's Day, and uh, you should hear him talking to uh, a baby of three or four months. Uh, prattles is about the right word for it. Uh, and, and God prattles, God condescends. He gets down on his hands and knees and talks to us uh, in a way that we can understand. If God were to speak in language which only he could understand, um, you know, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. And God uses, uh, uses our thought forms uh, and he accommodates his revelation to suit uh, our uh, needs. So, for example, what kinds of things is, Cal- is uh, Calvin thinking about when he, when he uses the language of accommodation? Um, Paul, you know, Paul seems to be forgetful. Uh, he, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. It, it's as though Paul is saying, you know, I'm, I can't remember. And, and God, God uses that very commonal garden, homespun kind of language. We, we use language like, well... Those of us over 50 use that kind of language uh, all too often. Um, and uh, God accommodates himself to, to, to Paul here. Or um, Galatians 5.12 uh, where, where Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And that's, uh, that's a pretty coarse sort of statement. And we won't uh, stop now to define exactly what Paul had in mind. Um, but it's a pretty coarse uh, kind of uh, statement. And, and uh, God accommodates. I mean, did the Galatians understand what he meant? Oh, yes, they understood what he meant. So let's, uh, let's move on to inspiration. Um, let's look at the New Testament basis uh, for inspiration. And, uh, and here, 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, that I uh, cite in full uh, on page 1. Uh, that uh, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is uh, inspired. Um, it, it isn't as, the, as one translation of the 20th century rendered it, all inspired scripture meaning there are some bits of scripture that are inspired and there are some bits of scripture that are not inspired. But what Paul is saying here, he's attributing inspiration or he's, in, he's attributing breathed outness to the entirety of scripture. So that what scripture says, God says. Scripture is the product of God breathing out. Uh, like on a cold day, uh, you, you breathe out uh, when you're out walking or running or something, and, and uh, you can see the breath in front of you. It vaporizes in front of you, and God breathes out. And what have you got? Scripture. You've got Genesis through Revelation. It's God speaking. You want to hear God speaking? Just open your Bibles and read it. God is speaking. Scripture doesn't become God's Word. You know, it doesn't become God's Word because you feel 
a warm glow in your heart when you read this passage. That just may be indigestion. Uh, That may be lack of sleep. Uh, It's God's word whether you feel it to be God's word or not. It is always God's word. It is God's word even if you reject it. It's God's word if you despise it. Uh, Because scripture is, it's because of its uh, inspiredness, it's because of its breathed outness that it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in the way uh, of righteousness. Uh, And then Peter in 2 Peter 1, uh, 19 uh, through 21, uh, notice the text and turn back to page 1. Uh, We have the prophetic word uh, more fully confirmed to which You will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, Roman Catholics used to interpret that as as meaning that you shouldn't interpret the scripture by yourself. You should let the church interpret scripture for you. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that no scripture comes merely because it is of human origin. That, that men wrote as they were born along, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men wrote, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's this, there's this duality that Scripture is, on one level, the product of men writing. Men like Moses or David or Ezekiel or John or, or Paul or Peter, um, men wrote, but at the same time, concurrent with men writing, God was carrying them along so that what they wrote was exactly what God intended. Now, uh, uh, John 10:35 then is another New Testament uh, text of great importance here. Uh, and actually, this is just a side remark of Jesus. He's actually talking about something else, and uh, he's, he's quoting from the Old Testament a certain passage to prove uh, a certain point that we, we need not go into. But as a, as a kind of side remark about the passage, uh, it's a psalm that he's quoting, um, he says, Scripture cannot be broken. Uh, he uses a form of the verb uh, to, uh, to, to break apart. Uh, it, it cannot be broken apart. You can't tear it apart. You can't, you can't take Scripture and say, well, this bit is, uh, is human and that bit's divine. Uh, this bit's inspired and that bit is not inspired. Um, now, strictly speaking, all three of these texts, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, the Peter passage and, and John 10.35, all three of these texts are referring to the Old Testament. They're not... They're not actually at this point referring to the New Testament. They're they're talking about the Old Testament. Uh, We'll come to the New Testament in a minute. Um, Then uh, we need to talk about something called organic um, inspiration. By organic we mean that Scripture, as, as the text in Peter is making so very clear, Scripture is the product of two authors. There's a human author and there's a divine author. The divine authorship so superintends the human authorship that everything that the human writes is exactly what God intends. That's what Peter is saying. Men wrote 
as they were, as they were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. But there, there is this uh, dual authorship of human and uh, divine. The basic thought here is, is uh, God's words in men's mouths. That, that's the basic thought here. God, God is ensuring that his words are actually coming out of men's mouths or, or coming off men's uh, quills uh, or whatever, whatever scribal tool uh, they were employing. Now look at uh, some of these passages here. Jeremiah 1.9, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. This is Jeremiah. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Here's uh, here's Jeremiah saying, God put words into my mouth. Now, it's not explaining how he did that. It's not giving us the psychology of that. It's just saying that when Jeremiah spoke, it was the word of God. It was God's words uh, that he spoke. Or in Acts 4.25, Peter, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? On, on one level, it's what David said. On another level, it is what the Holy Spirit intended. David wrote, but it was what the Holy Spirit intended. Or uh, look uh, further down, uh, Hebrews 10, 15, uh, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. He's actually citing Jeremiah 31:31, 31, a very important passage about the promise of the new covenant. He's quoting Jeremiah, but he says, and the Holy Spirit bears witness. So Jeremiah says means the Holy Spirit says. So the New Testament here views um, Scripture as both a product of human origin and a product of divine uh, origin. And the divine origin ensures that what the human being contributes is precisely what uh, God intends. Now, there are some qualifications, and I uh, mentioned some of them. Um, and let me, let me go for the jugular here. Uh, at times, the message is given by dictation. Now, this is a very... Uh, um, uh, um, it, it, it's, it's a word that, that, that uh, especially in uh, liberal uh, circles, uh, gets uh, people all fired up. Uh, um, and sometimes sometimes um, the view is, uh, is put forth that an evangelical uh, doctrine of inspiration is a, a doctrine of dictation. And that's, that is not, as we shall see in a minute, uh, an evangelical view of the doctrine of inspiration. But sometimes... Sometimes um, God dictates. When, when he wrote uh, the Ten Commandments, he said to Moses, uh, you know, um, take this down. Uh, and uh, take it down word for word. Don't add to it or don't, don't change it in any way. Do exactly, write exactly uh, what I say. God dictates the Ten Commandments or, or the uh, seven letters in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, These are letters from Jesus to the seven uh, churches in Asia Minor. Uh, John is taking dictation. Uh, Just like a secretary, uh, he takes dictation. He he hears the voice of Jesus and he writes down exactly what Jesus says. Now, it wasn't always like that. Um, But sometimes um, it's by dictation. 
Um, uh, sometimes liberals uh, sort of scoff at that in a kind of snooty way and talk about it as the typewriter view uh, of uh, inspiration, and that's meant to get us all apoplexic. Um, uh, the next thing, at times, Bible writers wrote beyond their own understanding. Now, um, I've read enough seminary papers to know that human beings can write beyond their own understanding. Um, you know, did Isaiah understand fully when he, when he spoke of the suffering servant in four songs that he wrote uh, seven centuries before uh, the coming of Jesus? Did, did he understand fully the significance of what he was talking about? Probably not. Uh, Did Jeremiah, when he wrote about uh, the new covenant, did he understand fully the implications of what he was saying? Probably not. You know, Peter says about Paul, there are some things in Paul that are hard to be understood. Which is true. Uh, When Paul Paul writes about, uh, well, we won't go into that. At times, Bible writers wrote uh, beyond their own uh, understanding. Um, and, and then another caveat here, we can't parcel out inspired bits and, and non-inspired uh, uh, bits. Now, what are the characteristics of organic uh, inspiration? Um, differences of style, because on one level, the Bible is written by human beings. On one level. That's, that's one side of the coin. And that human contribution can be seen. So if you were to give me uh, a chapter um, at random from the Old Testament, don't, don't do this just in case I get it wrong, but if you were to give me a chapter almost at random and you said, this is one of the major prophets, and the expression, the Holy One of God occurs several times in the quotation, I would say, well, that's Isaiah. You know, that's not Ezekiel, it's not Jeremiah, that's Isaiah. Because he has a thing about the holiness of God. Because he, he saw the holy, holiness of God in Isaiah 6. And for the, for the rest of the book, he, he's always talking about God as the Holy One. Uh, Jeremiah seems to engage in a kind of introspective um, self-analysis. Uh, uh, in a way that, uh, that uh, Isaiah certainly does not. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of the endearing things about Jeremiah that he, he talks about himself. He, he cites in Jeremiah 19 and 20 that dark, dark, dark chapter when, when he wishes he'd never been born. When he wishes that he had died in his mother's womb so that his mother would forever be his grave. I mean, those are dark thoughts. And, and he, he, he shows us a little about himself. Uh, or John... You know, when he begins his uh, gospel, en archenologos, kaiologos. I mean, those are, those, you know, you only need to study Greek for 30 minutes, and you could read the first verse of John's gospel. I mean, it's simple. It's very simple. Just basic, simple words, simple grammar. It's, it's ABC, and yet you'd spend the rest of your life trying to fathom exactly what it is that John is saying. And that's a very, that's a characteristic of, uh, of John. Uh, John's fascination with numbers. Uh, the way John's gospel is written and the way Revelation is written shows a, a fascination with, uh, with numbers. Um, Paul, Paul can get so excited that his grammar can go out the window. 
Uh, he writes a sentence in Ephesians that just never stops. Um, that, that an editor would say, you've got to chop that up. There's four sentences here, Paul. But he's so excited, he can't stop. And that's Paul. Passionate man that he was. And you see it in his letters. His passion. Uh, you, can see, uh, you can see in Galatians uh, the passion of a young, a young man. Uh, and then you turn to the pastoral epistles and you see, you see a mature man. A grown up man. Uh, dependence on ordinary sources. Uh, yes. How are these books put together? Uh, the books of Samuel, uh, the books of First uh, and Second Chronicles. They talk about uh, research that was done in chronicles of history. Um, books called the book of Nathan the seer or Samuel the seer. These were, these were history books, cr- cr- uh, books of chronology. Uh, books uh, that were kept in the archives and they were consulted uh, in order to put First and Second Samuel and Chronicles uh, together. When Luke... You know that very almost pedantic way that Luke begins his gospel and he's giving this very flowery uh, preface to Theophilus and he's saying, I've done done research, I've gone to libraries, I've talked to eyewitnesses, I've had my iPhone, I've recorded exactly what they've said, that that introduction of Luke. He's a historian. Um, there There are things in the Bible that look remarkably similar to documents and styles that exist in the ancient Near East. So when covenants are spoken of in the Bible, uh, covenants with Abraham or covenants with Moses or covenants with David, the pattern of those covenants reflect the way legal covenants were done in the ancient Near East. So they're they're bringing forms and expressions from the world outside of the Bible uh, into the Bible. There are secular and religious styles uh, that are reflected in the Bible. Uh, Then again, Revelation is not flat, by which I mean um, it has has peaks. There are mountain peaks. Uh, When when you read... um, when you read Isaiah, for example, it seems as though, it seems as though this, is a, this is a heightened um, awareness now of the coming of um, Messiah. Um, Hosea, in his understanding of uh, the covenant uh, love of God, or uh, Ezekiel's understanding of the glory of God, or Paul on justification, these are, these are heights, these are like alpine peaks. Uh, in the Bible. So, the, so Revelation isn't flat. Uh, there may even be development uh, within uh, an individual writer. Uh, I, think, I think it's fair to talk about uh, um, a young Paul and an older Paul. Um, you know, that talk about emasculating is the young Paul. It's Galatians. Uh, and then when you, when you read uh, the pastoral epistles, you, you, you read language that's, that's more conducive of somebody who's older and maturer and perhaps a little more patient. Um, even, even in, uh, even in uh, Acts, you see uh, at the very beginning of Acts, this, uh, this almost experiment-like thing that the church... Uh, uh, holds its property uh, in, in common possession, a voluntary thing that they do right at the beginning of Acts, but it, it, it sort of disappears. So, so you, you see growth and you see development even, even within books. 
itself. And, and all of that, all of that is uh, evidence of the human side of the Bible. Um, but all of it, every jot and tittle of it, is superintended by God. Men spoke, but as they were born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. But uh, the Bible doesn't lose the, the human uh, quality. You can, you can tell uh, Mark. Mark is always in a hurry. He's the guy who ran naked uh, fr- from a scene, you remember? Uh, and uh, he uses a little expression in Greek, kai euthus, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and, and he's breathless. And Luke is, is like a historian. And, you know, you know, everything sort of slows down when you read uh, Luke. It's like watching the History Channel, you know. And uh, you're sort of propping your eyes open uh, because this is Luke the historian. Very meticulous, very precise. Now, plenary inspiration. Plenus, as you all know from your Latin, plenus means full. Uh, plenary inspiration is, organic inspiration is that the Bible is both human and divine. It is 100% human, 100% divine. Uh, plenary inspiration is the quality uh, that all of Scripture is inspired, not just bits of the Scripture or parts of the Scripture. All Scripture. Second uh, Timothy 3.16. Whatever is Scripture um, is inspired and uh, uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Every single scripture is human and divinely uh, breathed out. Now, technically speaking, this is, a, this is an attribution uh, uh, given to the original autographs. This isn't, uh, this isn't saying that the King James Version uh, is inspired by God or the NIV Uh, is inspired by God. Well, the NIV definitely isn't inspired. Um, The ESV isn't inspired by uh, God. Uh, Technically, uh, this is an attribution of the original uh, autographs. Uh, The uh, uh, Confession of Faith puts it like this. um, The Old Testament in Hebrew, um, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, we have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar tongue of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Um, now, uh, let me make another caveat here that, that uh, the writers were not always inspired or preserved from error or kept from sin. Um, Paul, for example, wrote a letter, maybe two, some say three, but p- probably two, to Corinth in addition to First and Second Corinthians. Um, he mentions in Second Corinthians uh, a letter that's not First Corinthians, but a letter that's written in between First and Second Corinthians, for example, that, that we don't have. 
And uh, one presumes, therefore, that that letter was not inspired. It wasn't breathed out by God, and it wasn't, it wasn't kept in the providence of God. Uh, we don't have that letter. Uh, David, you know, David is, a, is, a, is a, an instrument of God in the writing of Scripture. But at the same time, uh, David was a man full of sin. Uh, and we won't talk about Solomon. Um, so just because they were used as instruments in the writing of the Bible doesn't mean there weren't periods of their life when they didn't sin. Or that they didn't write shopping lists. You know, when they went to Kroger. But that wasn't inspired. You know, that wasn't part of Scripture. There was a, there was a deliberate act of God when, when that which they were writing was to be Scripture. Now, the denial uh, of plenary inspiration, full inspiration of the totality of Scripture, comes from the view, and it is a, it is a point of view, it's a worldview, uh, that says to err is human and to forgive is divine. And I'm not sure who said that, but Alexander Pope may have been the first person to have said that. Uh, though I think uh, one of your former presidents also uh, said it, and, and it's sometimes attributed uh, to him. Uh, but to err is human. Now, what's the problem with that? To err is human. Well, that's true. Apart from Jesus, that is true of every single human being that's ever been in the world. But um, it overlooks what Peter is saying. Because Peter says, God superintended and oversaw in his sovereign providence that when these erring humans wrote, they wrote in such a manner that what they wrote was precisely what God intended them to write. Men wrote, and they were sinful human beings who wrote, but they wrote as they were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. It also proves too much. Because if to err is human, well, all the Bible is human. There isn't a, there isn't a verse in Scripture that isn't of human origin. All of it is human. So, so therefore, therefore, on that score, there could not be any part of the Bible that is inspired. So that proves too much. Um, and uh, the denial of plenary inspiration also comes from those uh, who point to the phenomena uh, of the Bible and uh, the fact that the Bible employs uh, various uh, literary forms and so on. Now, what about the attestation of Scripture? Um, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God because it is the Word of God. Do you want me to say that again? The Bible is the Word of God because it is the Word of God. Now that sounds circular, right? But when you're dealing with ultimate propositions, I mean, what higher authority than God can you have to verify that this is from God? The Bible claims that it comes from God. That there is no higher authority than, than God. So of the very nature of the case, it is the Word of God because it is um, the Word uh, of God. Now, uh, I'll, I'm going to skip over a little bit of uh, uh, the next page, uh, the testimony of the church uh, also 
the fact is that in God's providence, uh, the Bible has proven to be uh, verifiable and dependable and trustworthy for 2,000 years. It's not the ultimate reason why I believe the Bible to be the Word of God. You know, when I was converted in 1971, uh, I'd never read the Bible. I, I, I didn't possess a copy. I, I, I just never opened the Bible in my entire life. Um, but when I first read a Bible, I, I knew immediately it was the Word of God. It, it read differently. It, 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 it had a quality that was entirely different from anything else. It testified to me. Actually, it was the testimony uh, of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, the self-attestation of Scripture. Uh, the self-attestation of Scripture. Scripture witnesses to its own authority. Scripture claims for itself that it is the Word of God. Uh, And over and above that, there is the testimony uh, of the Holy Spirit, the internal testimony of uh, the Holy Spirit. And I've got uh, several quotations for for the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, including one from someone on page 11 called Sinclair B. Ferguson in a a chapter that he wrote, uh, How Does the Bible Look at Itself? If one objects that any sophisticated reasoning or pre-understanding would bar the ordinary Christian from reaching the conviction that Scripture claims to be the Word of God, the answer is at hand. We're ultimately persuaded of the inspiration and authority of Scripture, not on the basis of coherent arguments in textbooks of doctrine, but through the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. It is by reading Scripture under the Spirit's influence rather than by skill of logic that trust in God's Word is born. That's, a, that's an incredibly pastoral insight. You know, how, how can you know that the Bible is the Word of God? Read it. Read it prayerfully. Read it open to the blessing and guidance and illumination of the Holy Spirit and it will testify to you that it is the Word of God. Uh, there are some examples of uh, the inward work of the Spirit in Scripture. In Lydia, the Lord opened her heart. And Paul in 1 Corinthians saying that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, and then he writes to the Thessalonians and he says, Our gospel came to you not in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. And, uh, and uh, when you read the Bible with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, uh, with the illumination and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, um, it is the most powerful thing in the universe. It can change lives 180 degrees. It can bring life out of death. It can make someone who is dead in trespasses and in sins alive in Jesus Christ. The Bible, uh, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, uh, and read by, by someone whose eyes are open in faith, uh, is the most powerful thing in all uh, the world. Now, a quick, uh, a quick note uh, on page 12 about canon. Uh, This is probably the most difficult uh, area of the doctrine of Scripture, canon, uh, the 66 books uh, of the Bible. We've already seen 
uh, we've already seen how the New Testament views the Old Testament. So 2 Timothy 3.16, the passage in Peter, John 10, uh, these are all statements, of course, about the Old Testament. Why do I believe that the Bible, the Old Testament, is the Word of God, infallible and inerrant? Because Jesus did. It's always wise to be on the side of Jesus and always unwise to be on the wrong side of Jesus. Jesus viewed the Old Testament, and actually the Old Testament is much more difficult to accept as the Word of God than the New Testament is. But Jesus believed, Jesus, you can't worship Jesus, you can't call him Lord, you can't say he is the creator of the universe, he is my Lord and Savior, but he was wrong about the Old Testament scriptures. You know, he was a man of his day or something of that kind. You know, he was just a, he was just a rabbi, a man of his day. I mean, he was, he, he's my Lord, he's my Savior, but he was just wrong. How, how can you do that? If Jesus was wrong about anything, he's not my Savior. And he believed the Old Testament to be the infallible, inerrant Word of God. It cannot be, it cannot be torn apart. But what about the New Testament? I look at these, uh, these things I, I have for you here. Note the way the Old Testament quotations are introduced by, it is written. Uh, I love this phrase from Rudabos. It is a phrase which in the New Testament puts an end to all contradiction. You want to end all contradiction? You just say, it is written. That's it. There's no debate. It's finished. Note the way John rounds off his own gospel with the words, these are written. Oh, using the same, using the same words here. Isn't, isn't that interesting? That, that John is putting his own gospel on a par with the Old Testament scriptures that he quotes, it is written. Notice Paul viewed the teaching, uh, his teaching as the word of God. When you received the word of God which you heard from us. When Paul, when Paul wrote... It was the word of God. Um, Disobedience to the teaching in these letters could lead to excommunication. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Wow, you've got to be be pretty self-confident, bordering on the arrogant, unless you actually are an apostle of Jesus Christ so that when you actually write something if you, if you, if you disobey it uh, you're to be shunned uh, apostolic letters are read al- alongside Old Testament scripture uh, Colossians 3, 4 when this letter has been read among you have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans you know, they had a practice of reading the Old Testament and now, now they're reading letters by Paul Uh, Or at the end of Revelation, the end of the Bible, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if uh, uh, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. What a solemn warning, isn't it, at the end of the Bible. What a solemn warning at the end of the Bible that if you add or take away and, and there, have been, there have been those certainly who want to take away you know you, you, you see inspired bits actually now I'm going to get you all bent out of shape 
Um, actually, red letter Bibles can sometimes do that. You know, because these are more inspired bits, you see. Then why would you have red letter Bible? Because all scripture is, is breathed out by God, not just the red letter bits. All scripture. You know, the chronology, the, 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 the list of names. Do you remember, those of you on, in Ezra, the list of names? Th- that is as inspired as, as John 13 or 14 or 15. It's still the word of God. Oh, I'm going to get questions about that, I'm sure. Uh, note the way 1 Timothy 5.18 cites both Old and New Testament books. It cites from Deuteronomy and Luke 10.7 with the words, For the Scripture says. So there's already a provenance of Luke's gospel in the church that's being viewed as Scripture. It's not that the church puts its stamp of approval on certain books. That's not the way it happened. These books came into being and testified as to their own nature, that they were the Word of God. They were recognized by the church as being the Word of God. Um, So there's a consciousness of canonical status to the 27 books of the Bible already in the early New Testament church. Now, uh, if you want to chase that a little further, uh, a a very, very, very good book has just been published uh, by a a friend and and colleague of mine, um, Michael Kruger, uh, who teaches in Charlotte, at RTS in Charlotte. Uh, Canon revisited uh, Mike Kruger, I think is one of the uh, world's uh, scholars uh, at this point in history on the issue of Canon. Uh, and if you're, uh, if you're wondering uh, or want to do some more reading um, at, at, a, at a deeper level about the issue of canonicity, um, how did the 27 books of the New Testament uh, become the canon and that, that, that canon was closed and, and issues about uh, Hebrews or the authorship of Second Peter or uh, the provenance of Ephesians, whether it was written by Paul and so on, all of these things have been challenged uh, over the years. Uh, you, you, all, you all remember Luther, of course. Uh, Luther had misgivings about uh, James uh, because he misunderstood James. Uh, the, the, Luther's problem was that he misunderstood what James was actually saying, and, and I think that's, uh, that's the explanation for, for uh, Luther. Now, uh, unless you've been hiding under a rock or you live in uh, uh, another universe, uh, you, you probably have heard of the name Bart Ehrman. Uh, he's been making a great uh, deal of noise uh, for the last decade. Uh, Bart Ehrman uh, was an evangelical, uh, raised in an evangelical home, uh, went to Moody uh, in Bible Institute, uh, Wheaton, uh, studied at Wheaton, uh, then went to Princeton, uh, did some research under Bruce Metzger, uh, and now is at Chapel Hill in North uh, Carolina. He's written about 20 books, including uh, uh, Misquoting Jesus, and uh, his latest one, Did Jesus Exist? And Jesus Interrupted, and uh, The Lost Gospel of Judas Iscariot, uh, Lost Scriptures, uh, Lost Christianities. Uh, if you watch uh, or listen to NPR, uh, and NPR doing a little s- a slot on... Um, you know, these, these uh, Gospel of Thomas or, or Gospel of Judas, uh, 
uh, and, the, and all of these are chipping away at uh, the question of canon. You know, uh, did, did the church just arbitrarily put together these books and, 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 and uh, overlooked uh, other things that just didn't conform to its narrow way of thinking? And, and, and little by little, drip by, you know, it's a drip-drip method. Um, NPR will often ask Bart Ehrman, uh, he's been on NPR several times in the last few years, uh, he's, he's the sort of leading uh, critic uh, of the New Testament uh, canon, uh, and uh, uh, if, if that's an issue that you want to chase, uh, you, may have, uh, you may have seen as one of the New York bestsellers, for example, uh, lost, uh, uh, lost Christianities and the Lost Scriptures were New York bestsellers. And you might have been in an airport and seen this book. You might even have got a copy of it. Uh, and you're wondering uh, about this. Uh, um, the easiest way is to look at this video uh, it's about 15-20 minutes or so by Mike Kruger. He's, he's just a, an authority on this issue. And uh, it's extremely well done if you have college students uh, who are facing some of these uh, threats uh, to the canon of the Bible. Uh, l- let me urge you to send them to this uh, video link. And uh, I've put the link uh, on the website, um, fptheologyschool.com, uh, and all you have to do is click and uh, as long as you've got uh, the right equipment that's up to date, it'll play. Uh, and uh, that, that's, uh, that's the beginning of the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, next week we'll go on to talk about inerrancy and infallibility and some of the really exciting uh, debates that are taking place about the extent uh, of uh, inerrancy and what that means, uh, but all of that uh, next week. If you have any questions... Uh, Go to that website and ask, uh, ask them uh, there. Um, be more than happy to try and answer them uh, for you. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for these uh, 66 books of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, every single one of them, and all of its uh, contents, uh, the, the direct breathing out of Almighty God. We thank you that we, you've not left us in the dark uh, to swim, as it were, uh, in a sea where we don't know where we're going, uh, but you've given to us a, a book full of wisdom and truth and guidance and direction and uh, promises and, and threats. And uh, we pray tonight that we might fall in love with the Scriptures. And be able to say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. So bless us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.